We are in Romans chapter 16. This morning we're finishing up the book. We've only got a couple of verses that we're going to be looking at today. So why don't you go ahead and turn there with me. Romans chapter 16. We're in verses 25, 26, and 27. And as I mentioned over the course of the last couple of weeks, the next two Sundays we'll be focusing on Easter. Um, Next week being Palm Sunday and then Easter following that. Dustin will be teaching next week and then I'll be doing Easter Sunday. And then after that we'll be starting 1 Samuel. So again, I would encourage you, um, if you're getting tired of me encouraging you to read ahead, that's okay, it's a big book, but um, I would encourage you to do that. Um, it'll really help in our study because with Old Testament narrative, since you're covering so much ground, it's very difficult to just go verse by verse through something like that because we'd be here until I retire someday. Um, so we'll be kind of not necessarily jumping over sections, but summarizing sections. And so if you know the book because of having read through it, that'll make a lot more sense as we do that. So um, I think I'm through chapter 15 or 16 right now in my prep, and uh, it's been a great study. starts off a little intimidating, as David mentioned to me this morning, the book does, but uh, it's a great book, and I think we'll enjoy our study in that. So please do uh, start reading ahead in that. Go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 16 with me. We're looking at verses 25, 26, and 27. Let me go ahead and read that to you. Romans 16, chapter 25. Paul says, Now to him who is able to establish you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifest and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to the obedience of faith, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. Now one of the first things I think you'll probably notice about this is that it's a rather difficult sentence, if you will, these three verses. Um, the structure on it's a little bit awkward. We would refer to this as a doxology. How many of you have heard that word before? You know what a doxology is? Some of you, if you were raised in... Um, Sometimes in the Catholic Church, but oftentimes in Lutheran churches, they will end their services with doxologies. Um, sometimes they end them with benedictions. But this is what's referred to as a doxology. It's two Greek words that have been kind of crammed together. Um, doxa meaning glory, and then logia meaning writing. So this would be a, uh, you could you know, literally translate it as something like a writing of glory, but it's basically written praise is what it amounts to. Now, it's a little bit awkward here because it's not really a complete sentence in the Greek. And you can do that and get away with it. English, we can't do that. You get marked, you know, big red pen on your paper if you do that. But in Greek, you can get away with that, you know, having an incomplete sentence. So this is one sort of giant incomplete sentence. And what's kind of different about it is you really can't grasp the understanding of it unless you sort of pull out some chunks. And what I mean by that is Paul starts with a phrase, now to him. Then he kind of does some other things in the middle there. And then he ends with, be glory forever. So the main point of this doxology is this. God deserves glory. That's kind of what the bottom line is. You could sort of shorten this whole structure to the sentence, Now to Him be glory forever. Amen. So what we're going to do is we're going to break this down. We're going to sort of look at each one of these small little segments to see if we can sort of wrap our heads around, around this. Because really what Paul is doing is he's ending his letter in this doxology of, of giving praise and honor back to God for something. And so let's go ahead and look at that. Let's look at some of these, these phrases. He starts off with this. Now to him who is able to establish you. 
The word that he uses there refers to establishing something or strengthening it. It means to make it stronger, more firm, unchangeable. That's the word for established there. Now, different translations treat this differently. You may have a version that says, Now to him who is able to establish you, as I just read in the New American Standard. But some translations render this as strength, and it might read in your Bible, Now to him who is able to strengthen you. And both of those are appropriate uses of this word here. I lean more towards the concept of establishment than strengthen because I think what Paul is addressing is our position in Christ, that God has established us in our position and on our salvation with Christ. I don't think Paul is referring to simply strengthening us in that, but rather reflecting on what God has done through this whole entire book, which is to establish us in salvation in Christ Jesus. I want you to turn to um, 1 Corinthians chapter... One, if you would. First Corinthians chapter one. I want you to see what Paul says about being established in Christ. First Corinthians chapter one, starting at verse two, he says this to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. With their Lord and ours, or their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which has been given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you are enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's go ahead and break that down a little bit. You notice there's a number of things that Paul mentions here. He says, first off, that we were sanctified. That word is the word that's used for holy, but it means to be set apart. So it says that we've been set apart in Jesus Christ for God's purposes. He calls us saints. That's the word for holy ones. You know, I, 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 hate the, I hate the phrase, oh, we're just sinners saved by grace. Because even though that's theologically true, the scriptures refer to us as saints who happen to sin, not sinners who happen to get grace. Does that make sense? The focus is on the fact that you have been changed. You are now a saint. You may not feel like it. You may not behave like it or act like it. But we are now saints. We are holy ones in God's eyes. And that's really what our focus ought to be on. It's kind of like that bumper sticker that says, Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. Gosh, it makes my skin crawl. (laughs) It's almost like an excuse to keep on sinning, right? But we need to focus on the fact that we are saints because we've been established in Christ. Notice he also says in verse 3 there that we've been given grace and peace. Grace is that free gift of unmerited favor. We got something we didn't deserve. He says we've been given peace now. Well, the peace he's referring to there is the fact that because we've been established in Christ, we now have peace between us and our Heavenly Father, something that sin destroyed. You remember back in the garden? You know, they have this perfect relationship with God, and because of sin, all of a sudden now that's broken. Now there's enmity or strife between God and man. And so we've been given peace because of Christ. He goes on in verses 4 through 7, he says that we lack absolutely nothing. We lack no gift because of the testimony concerning Christ that's been confirmed in us. He also says that we will be confirmed to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Christ. 
And he says, all this is possible. We've been established in Christ, so we've been sanctified, we've been made holy, we've been given grace and peace. All that will be confirmed, he says, in the end. And it says that, in the end, we'll be blameless before our Lord, because God is faithful. That's what it means to be established in Christ. And so when when we go back to Romans chapter 16, verse 25, and it says that God is able to establish us, He's not only able, but He's actually done it in Christ. He's placed us into this position of holiness with His Son, Jesus Christ. Now Paul actually reminded the Romans of the security that comes as a result of that as well. I want you to go back to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 28. Listen to what he says about the security we have because of our establishment in Christ. Romans chapter 8. You'll remember these words as we've studied through them, but starting in verse 28, he says this, Now, we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these, that's us, whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for all of us, how will he not also um, with us freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is he who died. Yes, rather, he who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a pretty amazing few verses, isn't it? It's referring to the security that we have. You know, one of the first things I struggled with when I got saved was this idea of eternal security. I was raised Catholic. In the Catholic Church, there was no... um, It's kind of a weird dichotomy. Um, You're baptized as an infant to wipe away original sin, so you become part of the church, which is supposed to guarantee your salvation. But yet I grew up for years without any real concept of understanding the security that I have as a believer in Jesus Christ. And so there's this interesting dichotomy. You are sort of baptized, but you also have to work to secure your salvation. It doesn't really fit. And so even after I got saved, where I believed that my salvation was purely based on faith as a result of God's grace, I still continued to think I could lose my salvation somehow. And it wasn't until something theologically kicked in my head where I went, wait a minute, if I didn't earn it, I can't work to keep it. You know? So I struggled with that. Well, what Paul has laid down in these verses that we've looked at today, and in this one phrase, God is able to establish us, what he's getting at is he has created for us salvation in Jesus Christ, has placed us into Jesus Christ, and has secured for us, not just salvation, but security in that salvation, we have nothing to worry about. 
when we come to know Jesus Christ. Because we've been established in Him. Paul goes on to tell us how that's actually accomplished. Look at verse 25. He says, According to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past. So how has God established us? Well, it's according to the revelation of this mystery, Paul calls it, that was kept secret in ages past. Elsewhere, Paul refers to the gospel as a mystery as well. He says in Romans 1, 1 through 4, in Romans chapter 3, he says that the gospel was promised in the Old Testament, but not fully revealed in the Old Testament. There was an understanding. You know, I, I don't know that Eve in the garden, when God says that her offspring would crush the head of Satan, if she fully understood um, she might have understood it was a reference to a savior, um, but probably didn't understand all of that. Didn't might not have understood that it was the Son of God that would be doing that. Um, David, when David was promised that there would be a king forever on his on his throne, um, not really sure exactly how much David understood. So there were hints in the Old Testament of this mystery, but it wasn't fully revealed until Jesus Christ. And so what Paul says is that when God finally chose to reveal this, He was able to establish us. In him. Now, partly what made all of this a mystery to the Old Testament saints probably was the fact that it included the Gentiles, us. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 3, if you would. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. So Paul basically is saying, I was given by God a revelation and it involved this mystery that I'm about ready to reveal to you. By referring to this, when you read... You cannot um, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which is or I'm sorry, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. He's referring to the Old Testament saints. As it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. In other words, Paul is saying there's this mystery that God semi revealed to the Old Testament saints, but hid it from them. But he's now revealed it to his apostles through Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, to be specific, this mystery is this, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of His power. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. I had a conversation last weekend with a friend of mine from... Um, the church that we had started in Grove City. And he and his wife attend a Jewish synagogue for um, Messianic Jews. And um, so we were talking about that a little bit. And um, it was interesting because one of the things that really attracted them to this Messianic synagogue church 
was the idea that Jesus Christ is a Jewish Messiah. He was sent to the Jewish people. That was God's plan and purpose. And oftentimes that gets lost in the Christian church. In fact, even in, in evangelical circles today, we see this rise of what I'm going to call anti-Semitism. This despising of Israel. And I think that the church in general has failed to understand, no, Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. God sent him to the Jewish people. He went to his own, it says, and his own rejected him. But even with that, he is still a Jewish Messiah. We Gentiles get to go along for the ride. God's purpose and plan was to send a Jewish Messiah to save the Jewish people and then to incorporate the Gentiles into that redemptive plan. And so Paul says that was a mystery. The Jews expected a Savior. The Gentiles didn't. But guess what? We get to participate in that. And so we are saved because of what God has chosen to do with Israel. That's Romans chapters 9, 10, or, uh, yeah, 9, 10, and 11. Paul makes that very clear. We're grafted in and we shouldn't become arrogant because of that. And so Paul basically is, as we look at just this first phrase again from Romans chapter 16, the fact that God is able to establish us. It's all about the gospel and the fact that God has, has created a means and method of salvation for us and has placed us into Christ, has established us in Christ. He is now our identity. He is now our hope. He is now our peace. He's now our holiness. That's, all, that's what we have, folks. And so Paul begins this doxology, what God should be praised for, what God should receive glory and honor for, is because of what he has done in us, in our establishment in Christ. It's pretty cool. What does he go on to do? Well, look at the second part of that, verse 27. He says, to the only wise God. And so he says, basically, now to him who is able... To establish us, and then to him, the only wise God. This phrase is kind of interesting. It's the only place in the Bible this phrase is used. The only wise God, which I found rather interesting. I thought I was going to find tons of stuff on it. But it actually is the only time this phrase occurs, the only time God is referred to as the only wise God. What's interesting, though, is that the gospel is oftentimes a reflection of God's wisdom in the scriptures. Turn to Romans chapter 11, verse 33. See if I got my citations right here. Romans 11, 33. In another similar doxology, if you will, Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. It's a reference to the gospel. And so Paul basically, as he reflects on the gospel, says that it's a reflection of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24. Paul's talking about the gospel again. We'll start in verse 23. He says, But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Again, the gospel Paul refers to as the wisdom of God. He does the same thing in Ephesians 3.10. I'll just read it for you. He says that the gospel being preached by the church, reveals the manifold or the many-sided or multifaceted aspects of the wisdom 
of God. And so the preaching of the gospel reveals the wisdom of God, Paul says, to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. And so we see this throughout the scriptures where the gospel is described as being the wisdom of God. It's kind of an odd thing, if you will. So what is it about the gospel that makes it a reflection of God's wisdom? Why would the authors use a phrase like the wisdom of God to refer to the gospel? I think there's a number of reasons. One one is the simplicity. Think about that. Every other world religion has some form of complex system requirements or regulations or hoops you have to jump through to gain salvation. But the gospel is truly as simple as it could possibly get. Any of you kids remember John 3.16? Anybody have that memorized? I'll not put you on the spot. Yeah, you want to go ahead and can you share it with us? Yeah, that is as simple as it gets. That's the gospel in a nutshell. Um, that in itself is kind of wise that God could summarize the whole entire gospel in one sentence. Okay? God loved the world, so he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him won't perish but have eternal life. So one of the things I think that makes the gospel wise is its simplicity because it's so radically different. I think something else is the means. In other words, something else that makes the gospel wise is the means for salvation. Because God is perfect, holy, and just, because the bar is so high, there is absolutely no way that a sinful man can earn his favor with God. You just can't do it. Ephesians 2.8.9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And so something else that makes the gospel wise, if you will, is that it's not, not based on man's merits. It's based purely on grace. It's a gift. There's no cost to it, except for God the Father and His Son. Something else I think that makes the gospel wise, if you will, is its completeness. Granting eternal life wasn't enough for God. You ever think about this? God could have given us eternal life um, and stopped there, but it would have ultimately sort of kept us in this fallen state, if you will. I I think I've shared this a number of times. Ed DeZago was doing a a series a number of years ago at a church here in town. Um, And he made this statement about going back to the garden and how that's not good enough. That Sometimes we sort of think that, that salvation is just returning back to the garden and walking in fellowship with God, which is pretty cool. But God didn't stop there. Salvation isn't just going back and hanging with the dude. God has chosen to do something rather unique and that he makes us partakers of the divine nature. That's something Adam and Eve didn't have. Did you ever think about that? The Holy Spirit... God himself indwelling believers. Peter basically says that we have escaped the corruption of the world and become partakers of the divine nature. That's what salvation is. It isn't just us getting to hang out with Jesus for all eternity. It's the God of the universe living inside of us because we have become partakers of his nature. So the gospel goes way beyond just salvation. It goes into transformation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that if we are in Christ, we are new creations. That the old things have passed, the new things have come. Think about that. When you got saved, did you really think that it was about more than just escaping the flames? I did. 
I, I mean, that's what I thought. I thought, you know, I don't want to go to hell. I still remember that day where in my bedroom praying up on my, up on my bunk bed in college and, and basically saying, God, I don't want to go to hell. That's, that's why I asked him to save me. It wasn't until a couple of weeks later that I began to realize something else is going on here. There's some other sort of thing happening here. And it wasn't until years later where I began to realize that salvation is far more than fire insurance. God reached down and transforms us. But he doesn't just fix the sin problem because he went beyond that. Again, if all he did was deal with the sin problem, we'd be Adam and Eve in the garden, hanging out with Jesus. But God has chosen to indwell us. Now, we will not fully experience that, obviously, until eternity. And to be real frank, I have no concept of what that will be like. I, I, I can't imagine it. I can sort of imagine maybe walking with Jesus, because the apostles did. What I cannot imagine to some degree is spending eternity in a place where God indwells me without the hindrance of this body and sin and everything else. But to be that close to the God who created the universe. Pretty amazing thing. I think one of the things I recognize, recognize more now than ever after being a Christian for, for I, think it's, I think it's a little over 30 years now, one of the things that convinces me of the truth of the gospel is how ingenious it is. Really. Again, I, I've, I've sort of hinted at this, but there's a reason why the gospel is so radically different than everything else that we have on this planet regarding religion. Think about this. Every other attempt by man to come up with a means of salvation involves the same thing. Mankind working himself to God. Just varying ways of doing that. You know? Through reincarnation or karma or, you know, the pillars or whatever. Every single world religion has something in common. They're all based on works. Every single one of them is based on man's merit. There's only one that is radically different. And that's God. I think it's because there is no way in the imagination of man that somebody would have ever come up with such a plan. Huh. God of the universe, who's perfect, holy, and just, decides to come as a man, submit himself to that, when the people he's going to save totally rejected him and don't deserve it. But he's going to do it anyway, going to spend some time here, going to be ridiculed, nailed on a cross, tortured, die, then raised from the dead, and then spend the next few thousand years still being rejected, and yet being patient, as Peter says, because he doesn't want any of them who have rejected him to suffer for all eternity. So he's patient, and he's waiting... That's just something that doesn't come from the mind of man. And I can say that with a certain amount of confidence because we've proven that. There's no other religion that does that. Every other one. No, no, no. And so much so, in fact, that that very simple gospel message gets rejected by us. It might be a little bit different. You could say, yeah, maybe man came up with that if there'd be at least some that would just go, oh, that makes perfect sense. But it takes the work of the Holy Spirit to do that, doesn't it? And so one of the things that that convinces me of the gospel's truth is its uniqueness. It is absolutely ingenious. And as far as I'm concerned, 
that in itself is, an, is proof of a divine origin to the gospel. Only a perfect God could come up with such an amazing, simple, complete plan of salvation. It's guaranteed to work if somebody simply accepts it. Right? So that's the only thing that makes sense to me. Only God could have come up with the gospel. That's why it reflects his wisdom. Let's look at the uh, last real phrase I want to look at here. Second part of 27, it says, Through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. And so what he's basically done, he says, is, you know, to the God who established us, to the God who is the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus is how he completes this. So we get to the main point of Paul's doxology here. The two things we just discussed are all descriptions of who God is and why he deserves what he's about to say here. And that's that he deserves glory forever. You know, this idea of God receiving glory is fairly common in the New Testament. Do you ever wonder exactly what it means? You know, it's funny because I would always feel a little bit funky around some of our charismatic or, or Pentecostal brethren because, you know, glory be to Jesus. It all, you know, and I'm talking like, do you really know what that really means? How many of you have ever seen the, the Princess Bride, the movie? I, I, I don't know why I can't think of, but there's a, a point in that movie where one of the characters looks at another and says, he, he keeps using the same phrase over and over, and he says, I don't think you, I think something, I don't think you understand what that really means. You didn't really remember what the phrase, what the character, uh, anyway. He basically just, he finally speaks up and says, I don't think that means what you think it means. Incomprehensible, that's the word. Incomprehensible. Or inconceivable, there we go, yeah. Inconceivable. I don't, yeah, I don't think. Who are the characters? Who are the characters? Do you remember what they are? I can't remember their names. Um, uh, a little bald guy. Yeah, inconceivable. Oh, and then finally another character says, well, I don't think that means what you think it means. Well, did you ever think about what this means when you see this phrase in the scriptures? To God be glory. I'm going to run through a couple of these. Romans 11.36. Turn there with me. Romans 11.36. We're going to just look at a few of these, just again as repetition. Romans 11.36. Paul says this. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. How about 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17? We're going to be bouncing around a little bit. 1 Timothy 1, 17. Paul says, Now to the King eternal immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So to, to Him be glory again. Philippians chapter 4. Why don't you flip there? I should have done these in order, shouldn't I? Philippians 4.20. We'll start in verse 19. He says, And my God will supply all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Second Peter 3. It says, To him be the glory both now 
and to the day of eternity. Amen. Now we could keep doing this. Galatians 1.5 says the same thing. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Ephesians 3.21 says to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever ever. Amen. Jude ends on a very similar doxology. He says in verse 25, To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So we get this phrase that's repeated throughout the scriptures. that To God be glory. To God be glory. It's really not all that complicated. Doxa, the Greek word for glory, has a number of usages in the New Testament. It carries the idea of honor or praise. Um, might, power, respect. So it can be translated any number of these ways. But in this particular context, it has the idea of praise and honor. So what Paul is really saying here is that God should receive and does receive praise and honor because or through Jesus Christ. And if you want to look at that more completely, this idea of through Jesus Christ is really a reference back to the gospel, through what God has done through Christ in the gospel. And so what Paul actually does in in the end of this letter here to Romans is he's reflecting on everything that he's taught so far. He starts with the gospel in the first eight chapters or so where he describes the peril that each one of us faces. The judgment of God that mankind is under because we have rejected him. And he goes on to describe how God had chosen to do something about that. And that's where we have the gospel. He kind of continues moving through that as he gets into God's redemptive plan and talks about how Israel, um, even though Israel has rejected God, God still has a plan for Israel, will still save Israel, and that in many respects Israel has to be saved in order for us to be saved because that's God's redemptive plan. And so Paul, as he describes all of that, and then as he gets into the practical application portion of the book where he explains to us that we now have a responsibility those of us that accepted the gospel, to now live our lives as a living sacrifice for him. As Paul reflects on all of that, he ends the letter with a very simple doxology, a very simple um, reflection. Because of all this, because God has established us in Christ, because he's the only wise God in coming up with the gospel, for that reason, God not only deserves, but will receive praise and honor eternally, through Jesus Christ, his son. Again, a reference to the gospel. Pretty amazing thing. Um, When you really think, and you go back to what God has done, I would love to be able to say, oh, he just, it was all about us. But it really wasn't. It's all about the eternal God glorifying himself. And to do that, he created us and saved us. Now, do I understand all the parts and pieces of that? Absolutely not. Um, But it was all done for his glory. To honor him throughout all of eternity. Um, I want you to turn to one last passage. I can't think of any other better passage that sort of summarizes this up. Um, Ephesians chapter 3. I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 1. I just want to read this because if there... If this passage of Scripture, if this Ephesians 1, doesn't give us something to praise and honor Him for, then nothing will. 
It's an encapsulation of everything that God, well I shouldn't say everything, but, but a lot of the things that God has done for us to secure His glory. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Just to look at these and reflect upon these. This is why God is honored and glorified, receives praise and honor throughout all of eternity. It's because of what he's done in the gospel and what's described here. Chapter 1 of Ephesians, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the kind intention of his will, and here it is, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him, with a view to the administration suitable for the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. See the number of times he mentions the praise of God's glory for all of this? Um, What a blessing that is. Um, Could God have honored and glorified Himself in other ways? I'm sure He probably could have. But He chose to do it by doing what He did for us in the Gospel.